This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Fish Flight Entertainment. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart to the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work, capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Ronnie Firminger, and today I am delighted to welcome Anne Wheeler to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Anne Wheeler is a screenwriter, a director, a mentor, and a legend in this industry. Her name has been invoked countless times on this very podcast by legends in their own rights, like Gabrielle Rose, Amanda Tapping, Vincent Gale, and Ali Liebert. They describe her as a change maker, a confidant, a collaborator, an artist, a fierce champion of women, her films include Bye Bye Blues, Loyalties, Better Than Chocolate, and Chi. Her television directing filmography is a mile long and includes shows like Chesapeake Shores, and with an E, The Romeo Section, and Firefly Lane. She's garnered seven honorary doctorates and an Order of Canada. I've been an admirer of Ann Wheeler's since The Diviners. I was far too young to watch but I did because Margaret Lawrence's book of the same name was my absolute favorite. And quite frankly, I was probably too young to have that book as a favorite book too, but so <laughs> it goes. But the Ann Wheeler that is most vivid in my mind at the moment is not the award-winning and critically acclaimed filmmaker and writer and change maker who is beloved in Canadian film and television circles. It's the one she writes about in her new book, Taken by the Muse on the Path to Becoming a Filmmaker. It's the Ann Wheeler before she became Ann Wheeler, the 20-something who was navigating a world that was slowly but surely rejecting the idea that women should just be happy with what they have, that they should be content with knowing exactly how their lives would unfold. The book begins with a late-night phone call from Margaret Lawrence herself and then takes us to distant climes and emotions that leap off the page and crash into your heart. A village in Africa an ashram in India, a long-term care home, and a very icy lake in Alberta. We meet homesteaders and gurus and a reckless chopper pilot and the women, incredible women who imprint themselves on young Anne and usher her on. As I closed the book, literally breathless after consuming it in one sitting, I thought of the words from Tennyson, from Ulysses, I am a part of all that I have met. These women and these stories are part of Ann Wheeler. They're the why and how and what and when of Ann Wheeler's narrative films, the work for which she's won countless awards and accolades. And now they can become part of your understanding of Ann's work too. Knowing them makes everything even richer. And today I'm gonna get Ann Wheeler to talk all about it. Ann Wheeler. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for reading the book. And 
one sitting. That's amazing. You read it all in one sitting. I, I did. I did. I, 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 I was there. I was just me and the cats. The cats came and went, but I was there the whole time. And I read it so breathless, breathlessly. And um, I mean, my husband was walking by me while I was doing it occasionally. He's like, your mouth is open. I'm like, you don't know what just happened to this woman. And every chapter had something like that. And then we meet incredible characters who are real people. And, uh, you know, and I, I like, like Augusta, my God. And then I went on and I watched the film so I could see it, uh, you know, which is on the NFB site so that I could see her and hear her. And, you know, she just matched exactly how you, you wrote about her. Um, I'm curious though, why did you decide to focus on this decade, the decade of your 20s, the 1970s, instead of the 1980s, when you were making the narrative films for which you became known? Well, you know, I'm on the, I'm on the set with a lot of young people these days, and, uh, you know, they, there seems to be a well-trotted uh, path now that goes from high school to film school to making movies. And I've always thought my days, I had approximately three years on the road in my 20s of traveling, and, um, you know, really my, my, my worldview was very limited before I took off traveling. And I thought uh, these were the moments that really uh, opened my eyes. The real, you know, earthly education was when I was traveling. And these were all events that taught me something that, you know, you can learn how to make films and how to pull focus and what lenses to use and all of those uh, you know, informational bits of, of learning, but to actually learn what it's like to take a risk or to go and get lost and find yourself, those are, you know, they're not lessons that are easily found in our education system. I, I think it's important that people really have a wide breadth of, of experiences to really discover who, who they are. And I, I did grow up in an era when um, being a filmmaker, you know, that, that particular uh, career was not even on the list. In high school, uh, the teachers handed out a list, I remember, and we checked off a lot of things, and, and instead of chicking, ticking uh, female, I ticked male. Mm. Uh, and, and I ended up that I should be a pilot. And they made me do the test over again, and when, when, when uh, you know, when it came back to me the second time, uh, I, th I think I was supposed to be a teacher or a nurse. I think there were just those two, basically, professions for women. So Wow. And um, I know after reading the book, you should not be a pilot. At least not. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the experiences, honestly. That's, they may be too late for that. Yeah. But I, I, think, I think that, that really, you know, um, I was lucky to live in a world that was very safe. It's, it's not. It's not an adventure. Probably, it would be easy to have today. The one I had, uh, traveling and to um, just jump in and start making films. But for me, films were when I got back from my travels. Films were a way. They were a tool for making films and for addressing issues and making statements. It wasn't so much that I wanted to be the groovy filmmaker. It's that this was a powerful tool. And I had a radio program for many years, but this was the one that seemed to reach out and get national exposure. And, and so as a, a documentary filmmaker, part of a co-op that mostly made politically driven f films, uh, this, is, this is why I learned how to make films, so I could 
learn the craft and 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 say what I wanted to say on my behalf or on the behalf of someone else. Yeah. Let's talk about who you were at the beginning of this book. And the joy of the book is that it is written in the present tense of wherever we happen to be. So we are with 20-something and very intimately, you know, as she has these wild adventures. Um, but how would you describe young 20-something Anne? Like, how did, how did you, how did she view the world? And how is it different from how you view the world now? Well, I think I've always been a rather sort of impatient person and maybe a short attention span. I don't know. I, you know, I took mathematics at the university. I had a short stint as a programmer for the university, took a job there. Now, I didn't like that, but I put my way through university doing children's theaters uh, in, and singing and teaching music. I taught music from the time I was 16 for a, a music school in Edmonton. Um, I went out to Vancouver hoping maybe I would get into the theater a bit, do more theater because I did a lot of musical theater in Edmonton. So I was really trying everything and anything, but I really didn't have any somebody saying, you know, this is a good thing. I, I was a bridesmaid nine times in one year. My friends were all getting married, wow. all settling down. And um, I just wasn't feeling that I could do that yet. There was just a sense that there was just too many things try and too many places to see and uh, so I you know I was a high school teacher in Burnaby and I um, saved up my money and I decided to go on a trip first of all to learn some French in, in France and then I decided I'm going to go around the world I only had $1,500 so in those days um, you know I traveled on very very little hosteling sometimes sleeping outside there were, it was a thing. There were a lot of travelers traveling at the time. And, uh, and I decided to go through Europe, the Middle East, and down through Africa. And then my plan had been to go over to India and continue and probably stop in Australia. This was not an unusual thing, uh, you know. Um, I mean, I met lots of travelers on my travels who, who were very similar to me. We're kind of wanderers, uh, vagabonds, uh, didn't quite know what we wanted to do, but we just knew that we wanted to keep growing and learning and that the world was way more, um, way beyond what we had told it had been. And and we just wanted to discover it for ourselves. Yeah. Now, writing this book, you've, you've written this book decades after you were in your, your 20s. What did you learn about who you were in your 20s by by working on this book? Like, what do you see now about yourself that you didn't see at the time? Well, it's, it, these stories are all stories, you know, I've, I, it's, they've all kind of crystallized over the years. They're stories I would have told the day after the event happened, right? Yeah. But then sometimes, that, you know, when I've taught or I'm directing or just motivating people, they're great stories that give a lesson. It's not a lesson that's in your face. But, you know, uh, like the story about Doris Smith, how we are, our history is always about the conquerors. It's always about the winners. We don't know really the history that goes on in all the different layers of society. Yeah. And, of course, being in the first person present, you know, I'm always placing myself there. Uh, you know, it, it provoked a new interest in my family or provokes uh, a sense that that could have been me if mm -hmm. I had lived in lived a hundred years before yeah. you know and you have to do a lot of of course you have to do a lot of 
uh, when you're writing, it's not really a memoir. It's really a collection of short stories. And they're all short stories I've told orally at Story Slams. You know, uh, so they've all had audiences that have given me back what is interesting, what do they laugh at, what, you know, provokes them. So they're kind of tested, have been tested stories in a number of different ways. And, uh, yeah, what did I learn about myself? Well, I don't know, I just, I guess I reconnected with a little bit with who I am. You get into this business of filmmaking, which is a wonderful business, but it's very collaborative. I think the best thing that happened to me in the whole experience of writing these stories down is I, I feel like I got my voice back. You know, I didn't have like a huge crew. I didn't have numerous producers and people at the, you know, uh, at the monitor and and uh, a writing team and all this a wonderful group of talented people I work with in film. But it is a collaboration. It was great to get down, whittle it down, whittle it down, and get back to my, my own voice. Mm, there are parts of this book that read like an action-adventure novel, like the chapter in the village, the African village, after you've called off your engagement and you flee in the night and your car breaks down. There is a sense of danger in the air. And it is not, it's not the only part of the book that is like this. And honestly, I was reading this. I'm like, I thought my 20s were exciting, but I was not living life like Ann Wheeler. Wow. Now that you've written this book, do you have inclinations or aspirations to transform any of these chapters into a narrative film? And if, uh, if not, why not? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, there's a couple of films there that, uh, stories, sorry, there that would lend themselves very well to a, a film, you know, and maybe even a low budget film. Uh, and I, I've certainly hung on to the film rights and the publishing of them. Um, I don't know, you know, my, right now I feel sort of like Doris Smith, the, the lady in my, in, in my book who, you know, said, you know, save this story or it will be lost. I ha have over the years collected stories. Stories have been sent to me, diaries, letters, uh, people just writing down, you know, an event that they experienced or went through. I feel like I have a treasure trove of, of stories around me and I should get them down in print. Mm. It seems to be uh, my, my first task and I have some of my own personal stories that I've written into script I want to make in. So, um, yeah, I feel, I, I feel sort of like a curator now, and uh, I want to make sure that um, uh, I'm on another book, and it's not necessarily going forward in time. It might even be set in years earlier than oh. Taken by the Moose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and, you know, talking about when you're making bigger movies like Bye Bye Blues, Suddenly Naked, or Better Than Chocolate. Um, boy, that gets really tricky to be in the first person uh, present because you're, you know, you're amongst a lot of people and there's a lot of things going on. So mm. to make it truthful and even now with all of the legalities that one has to ponder, you know, um, it makes it very, very tricky uh, to be truthful. And I feel like I, I love the truth of Taken by the Muse. Mm -hmm. I, I love that I can be open and make mistakes and, and uh, you know, oh, say what I think about what I see. You make some beautiful mistakes. See. Some beautiful mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 
I, I can't I can't say enough good things about this book. And honestly, we will be doing um, listeners can head on over to my Instagram and find all of the details about a book giveaway that we're going to be doing because I really need this book to end up in. So I want to talk to everybody about it. Um, Fantastic. The book's full title is Taken by the Muse on the Path to Becoming a Filmmaker. Uh, what are some of the lessons or emotions that you would like filmmakers to take away from your book? You know, because I know personally, I'm not a filmmaker, but I'm an artist. And I, I had such a remote, an emotional reaction to this book. You know, I wanted to just start like, what can I create right now? Let's just, let's go, let's go. Yeah. You know, so what are, what are some of the emotional reactions or lessons that you'd like filmmakers to take away? Well, I think that people are very hard on themselves, which, you know, of course, limits what they do. I mean, they're, they're so critical of themselves. I think you need to find that liberty to just do it because you love it mm-hmm. and and not to censor yourself and uh, and not let your ego take over. You know, what would people think of what I'm doing? Uh, will it sell? Um, I think it, once you get in the moment of being creative, then that's probably the best work you're going to do. Yeah. Whether you're a dancer or a, an artist or an actor, uh, when you actually get down to the love of doing the art, that's that's when you get down to being the best you can be. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, e- even my you know my friend Augusta, who was 89 when I made that film about her. She she really moved me because when she walked through the forest, she saw everything, every little bud and seed and insect and heard it all. She was really simply aware, and she was one of the most kind of content, calm, easygoing people I've ever met. She'd never had electricity. She'd raised 13 kids. Only three had been her own. She had been, you know, pushed out of her her community because she married a non-native uh, as a very young woman. So she left, had to leave her, live her whole life outside of the reservation. And, um, but she never, she never lost that warm and curious spirit. I mean, she, um, she really could focus on the beauty that was around her in the now. Mm. Um, I found that amazing. Um, and I think, you know, I, 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 people around me say I'm still naive, but I am. I think people are essentially good. And it's amazing how many times I turned in my life to, to face people who, had I faced them thinking they were going to harm me, they probably would have harmed me. But I faced them usually with a smile or make them laugh or engage them and ask their help. And, uh, and essentially, I've had wonderful surprises uh, along the way of just how many wonderful people there are out there. So I, I think think positively about people. Um, I know there's just so many, there's so many little lessons of life that uh, that just get woven into the telling of the story. Every story isn't about just one thing. Yeah. It's a whole series of events, right, that play on each other. And uh, just... Um, I've used, like I say, they're like parables. And when you think about them, uh, it, they say something different to every reader, to every listener. But um, they've stayed with me, and they've been the stories I've ended up using. Yeah. This is a time travel question. 
which I love. If you could go back in time with all of the experiences that you have had and the awards you've won and the films you've made and speak to that young woman speeding her bug across the desert, the one who has just broken her engagement to the Harvard man because she didn't want her life mapped out for her. What would you say to her? Well, um, I would just say, gosh, you're lucky. (laughs) 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 I feel incredibly lucky that I had that freedom. I lived at a time when the world was, I mean, there was a lot of awful things happening around me. But in general, it was a safer place. If I had a daughter my age, I'm not sure what I would say to her, you know. Um, But uh, I think that. Um, there were times when I was lonely and I was on the road and lost and maybe not knowing where I was going to sleep tonight, but it all worked out. And, um, I don't know what I would say to her. I, I, I guess I just say, I'd like to come along with you because, and, and live it all again. Cause, um, I, you know, I, I didn't take pictures. Well, I did take pictures, but I had my camera robbed and then I ended up not taking uh, pictures for a long time and I think that was a good thing was just not to have a camera between you and the other people that it kind of puts a wall between you and you're not really there and I don't often travel with a camera still but um, really, yeah well often because I just I don't want the you know the people to become subjects so I, I just want to uh, be a part of it and it it takes you out of being with them so uh, I often don't take my camera. Uh, I, I'll take it maybe on a day a week or something like that. There's lots of fantastic pictures I've, I've missed perhaps, but <clears throat> as you grow older, I know there's only so many pictures you can put in albums and reflect upon, right? But, mm. but the memories of actually having eye contact and sharing a meal and having a conversation that's private, uh, those are very valuable memories. Yeah. A while ago, you mentioned um, about your love, like when we were talking to filmmakers and talking about your love for the work and your love, their love for the art. Have you ever fallen out of love with the work, with the art? And if so, how have you how have you navigated that those moments? Well, you know, I I was in a city when I started out where there were no other companies and then there was another little film company and we merged so really we were we were in a very isolated situation when I first started making films and that community grew and grew I was in you know made made films in Alberta for more than 20 20 years and there was a great camaraderie there and a great care uh, sharing of of of, um, purpose and I think um, when I made my features again I had great sense of purpose that we had a great national pride on our Canadian stories and our Canadian talent and uh, then it seems like in the in the 21st century now you know everything not just film but art and science and everything has shifted so much to being about the marketplace mm. that um, there certainly have been times uh, I've a lot of episodic television. I've worked with a lot of wonderful people on episodic television, but I think you start losing your sense of purpose. Mm. And once you said lose that, then I think you start a, your your love for the for the the process 
you know. Mm-hmm. You, you don't, you, you may not share, you know, the same sense of purpose with all those around you. And I think as Canadians, we work, you know, for Americans a lot. So our, we feel our stature is a bit less than that of the Americans and that they're bringing their stories and we're telling their stories a lot, a lot from their books. Um, and so if you don't have as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, uh, the power to define your lead characters and your, you know, your place of where these stories take place, because they are also our characters, then you're a bit detached from it. And that can, as much as I love still working with the, with the actors and the camera and setting it up and choreographing and all that, I can get into the midst of that and have a wonderful day. When I sit back at it, I'm, somehow there is something missing there when you, when you don't, you're not telling your own stories or stories that are ones that represent you and who you are in the era that you've grown up in. Mm. So, um, you know, we, when 1967 was when I graduated from university, which was when uh, the world fair was in Montreal and we had such a sense of, of wanting, you know, Canada to be best filmmakers, do film art, break ground, um, tell stories in new ways. And that that filtered out, I think, by the 21st century. And I think it, it, it will be an important struggle to see that we still making make some of our own movies and make our own statements uh, and not get completely overwhelmed by the uh, the big machine from, from the South. It's a huge, huge question and it's one that we grapple with a lot on this podcast i don't expect you to have all the hours but Anne, how do we fix that you know like it's even the fact that our service like our industry is like 80 percent service 20 percent in shrinking you know homegrown creators telling their own stories like where where do we need to how do i fix this how do we fix this (laughs) how do we fix this (laughs) well first of all we have to make sure the stories are gathered and not lost Mm. Right. And then I think, uh, I don't know, you know, sometimes I have a a feeling that we have to kind of, um, I I mean, we make good living from the film business and I, and I appreciate, I've learned a lot doing all the American work I've done in the last 20 years, but I think we need to keep sure that we keep gathering our own stories and making sure whatever way they're not lost, be it on radio, on, in theater, uh, through music, um, whatever, I think that we will completely lose a sense of who we are if we don't uh, protect our own culture and our own stories. Yeah. Now, you entered the film industry when gender parity wasn't even a phrase that people used. You occupied spaces where women hadn't been welcomed before. Like, you had to be like one of the guys uh, instead of authentically who you were in some moments, a, wo- a woman, which you, I mean, you describe that in the book. How do you feel about the current climate for women directors? And what work still needs to be done? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of divisions now. You know, we have uh, black directors, women directors, First Nations directors. Um, I find like, uh, 
I, there's all sorts of divisions. I'm an old director, I guess, a uh, Western, you know, Canadian, everybody. I, I would like it so that, the, you know, the word in front of the director just goes away. That would be my long-term hope. Yeah. That somebody's just a director because they're a good director. Uh, there's no parts of my anatomy that get in the way or serve me to be a better director, you know. Yes! <laughs> You're not operating the camera with your genitals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't so, believe I just said that to Ann Wheeler. Oh my God! Oh uh, so well, I think I said something that uh, many times. Uh, yeah, I don't need. I don't need. Yeah. Well, anyway. Uh, <laughs> but it's true. And, it's true. Yeah, and my yes, don't get in the way. You know. Yeah. Um, I think that's what we have to be aiming for. I know there's a, a lot of a lot of choices and situations that are not balanced right now. Mm. Um, you know, and hopefully it will balance out because in the in the end it'll all depend on what's on the screen, how is the story tell, how how well was it done, and those people who do a good job hopefully will survive, and and they'll be called directors or whatever you know, and, and that uh, the the stories will survive because they're good stories, that because they're about this or about that, but just because they're good stories. Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, there is, there is a bit of a wobble right now happening. Um, how to fix it? I don't know. I, you know, I was lucky that I had three older brothers. So they, they didn't pay me much attention. If I wanted to go swimming with them, I just had to dive into the deep lake with them. And, uh, and they were there if I needed them. But if they didn't need that, if I didn't need them, that was better. Hmm. And, uh, and I've worked, you know, I've got three sons, and I've worked in a business that's predominantly male. And, and I've found most of them to be wonderful brothers. I've, you know, I've come across a couple of jerks, mm -hmm. but really, you know, not that many. You know, I can, I, I've been able to just, you know, just back away and, and not work with those people or say my piece and leave or whatever but um but for the most part i've learned from guys they've, they've been my support system they've raised money to make my stories told so i you know i have have had great friends in the business um and there haven't been many women because there just wasn't many women now there are a lot more women uh, it's a whole different thing, but I think I just, you know, I, just like I traveled, I just kept going because I was curious and I loved, um, be, you know, first of all, I felt like we had things to stay, uh, say as Western Canadians, uh, which was where we began really making films about Canada and, and how, how the West actually was kind of a colony of the East. Yeah. And, you know, that branched out and and slowly, slowly, I became an artist rather than just a, you know, a journalist uh, with a tool. And, um, yeah, the more complicated and the more I spent doing it, the more exciting it became because uh, there were just so many ways of, of telling a story through the medium. Mm. I know that you, you mentor... Uh, an abundance of incredible talent, including friend of the podcast, Ali Liebert. 
um, who is really finding her voice as a storyteller, as a filmmaker. Um, what kind of advice do you have for, for women, specifically women, who are coming into the industry now and who want the kind of career, they want the Ann Wheeler career? What kind of advice do you have for them? Well, I don't know if we can repeat the, you know, the circumstances in which I, I started, but I guess I'm always kind of, if, if you're a young filmmaker, female or not, um, and you have equipment around you that, you know, is available. I mean, we had to pay huge amounts of money in our eyes um, for film and equipment. Uh, you know, I had to fly in an editing bench to to cut loyalties from Toronto. I didn't, there was no editing bench. Oh my so, I mean, the, the, the effort we had to go to, to actually make our films in those days, when I see that now you can make films on, on your phones or get very inexpensive, you know, cameras, I would just say, get out there and start making films. I don't know what's stopping you. You are stopping you. Nobody's stopping you to make films. And I always, in, I always encourage people to go, um, go to, uh, you know, to who they are. Uh, how much do you know about your great grandmother or your grandmother or your grandfolks? You know, do your own family history first of all, and the own community history. And and as you're doing that, you'll learn more about craft and how to ask questions and how to structure a story. But sitting and worrying about and wondering how I'm going to do it ain't going to happen, you know. I think in the doing, you will learn. So I just think there's so many things you can be doing as a young filmmaker to um, get your confidence up. Yeah. Get your confidence up and, and then, you know, make one. Eventually, it won't be the first one. You know, I made over probably 25 films before I tried to make a feature. Mm. You know, nowadays people seem to go, they do a student film and they might maybe work on a bunch of other films and then they do a feature. <laughs> and they haven't, and they've mostly gone to school. Yeah. So I think, you know, get lots of worldly experiences. Um, gather up your stories, decide what they mean, tell them to people. And people will tell you if that's an important story or not, or move them, or if it had something to say. You know, I, just don't be passive. Just, you know, be active. Just tell a story about the first time you fell in love. Tell a story about the first time you saw death. Tell a story about, you know, the most incredible teacher you ever had and why they were, you know, kind of try to identify what it is that you want to make films about because being a film for, just to be a filmmaker is is actually not worth much yeah and wheeler such a joy to speak with you today you're welcome it's very nice to be here very i'm so nice. glad you love my book and of course it's a brand new you know it's pretty late in my life to start a new career but <sighs> <laughs> I love it so much. I want more. I really do want more. Um, that conversation, the fact that it began with that conversation, middle of the night, unexpected conversation with Margaret Lawrence and the two of you are, are drinking. Um, 
yeah. that I mean, self like just for, for my like because the diviners is my favorite book of all time. And one of the things that I love that she does in it is that she writes it like each I mean, because we're watching Morag grow up, right? So every section is written from Morag's perspective, from where she is yeah. at the time in that voice. And I, I like that you've done that here uh, as well. I, okay, I'm going to ask a selfish question. So you made The Diviners after uh, Margaret Lawrence had passed. Did you have more confidence making that film after that conversation that you had with her, you know, because of the, the initial film that, that you had made and that she had watched on the, on the videotape? People who aren't listening, I'm like, if you don't understand the story, just read the book, okay? This is for me. <laughs> this is a me question. Did well, you have yeah, a little Margaret true. Lawrence in your head talking to you when you were working well, on I the Well, I mean, Diviners? one short story, uh, I, I, you know, one short story very early in my career directing dramatic film. And then, and then like, what, 92, so that was almost like 15 years later, I was mm -hmm. invited to, you know, one of her most famous novels. And it was, um, it was very, actually, it felt like an enormous honor. I had already made you know, Bye Bye Blues and Loyalties and Cowboys Don't Cry, Angel Square, a lot of other films. So I wasn't worried about my skills. I knew my craft. It was, you know, a great deal of concern about the casting mm. because people read the diviners. They knew those characters. They had them in their head. They saw them and they all talked in their own way. And um, so to get that right in her honor, because, of course, she was no longer alive, mm. um, and to feel certain that you'd got it, you had to have a cast that really dove in and really you know didn't want to make it their own thing and something different from the book we all embraced the book and it felt very much like a team effort like we all were on the same page and um yeah we went to her we went to her her, her grave in uh, in manitoba and sort of um kind of you know as as a group and said what we were off to do and i feel like you know that uh, loyalty and devotion was guiding us through that film. It was a great, it was a great experience. And there's a wonderful crew always in Manitoba. They have a wonderful kind of, um, in Manitoba, they still, they still really make films because they love the stories and the crew members are like, they might be doing costumes, but they're also painters or they might be doing sound, but they're sculptures or musicians mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, they're, is that kind of a, a small city community. And and Margaret Lawrence, of course, is one of their great heroes. So yeah. to be amongst them was great. Oh, I could honestly, I, I have so many questions for you. I could listen to you just talk all day, but I won't. I'll let you get back to your day. Thank you so much for being here. Um, oh, thank you. The book is taken by the muse on the path to becoming a filmmaker. The author is Ann Wheeler. And where can people find your book? Well, hopefully they'll phone their libraries and bookstores because uh, I know it's been very hard with the pandemic to launch a book. And mm. bookstores, I think, underestimated how many books they might need. So right. a lot of people have written me with frustration. But um, if you go to annwheeler.com, which is my website, I have books. I will sign them to whoever they want. Fantastic. And it, and it costs $5 in postage to send it but I'll send it anywhere in Canada for $5. It's a little bit confusing when you're 
filling it out, it looks like it's going to cost you $14 for postage, but that's because it's an American program and it thinks that I'm sending it to the States. But as soon as you put your address in there, $5, the book signed and, uh, and then that way, you know, I can, you can get back to me if you're a reader and tell me what you think. So I love oh, to throw my readers. I'm going to order like five copies from you right now because I have so many people that I want to read the book. So, okay, great. And there will be a link to uh, Anne's website in the footnotes for this episode. Thank you, Anne. Thank you Thank to you. our listeners. You can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVRScreenscene. And it is on Instagram at YVRScreenscene where you can find the details for our book giveaway. The YVR Screen Scene Podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Rani Mera Firminger, and it's edited by Simon Firminger. Special thanks to Mariana Firminger for recording our Patreon ad, to Paul Firminger for technical support, and to Dane, <laughs> not Firminger, Devalet for the original music. YVR Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut! This ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the fish flight. In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. These were the early days of Hollywood North before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds, and the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The fish flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the fish flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com.